Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so very much that we can gather in your name this week to look again at your word. And our Father, we pray that in your mercy you might help us to understand it afresh and to live appropriately and accordingly to the honour and glory of our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, there's an old song that a man by the name of Louis Armstrong used to sing. He has his gravelly voice. He's really mostly known as a trumpet player, but he did sing occasionally. And one of the songs that he sang was one in which he looked around and he saw trees of green, red roses, the colours of the rainbow, the baby smiling and friends greeting one another. And where he thought to himself... What a wonderful world. If you've never heard that song, I feel sorry for you. (laughs) It's a very good song and I'm sure many of us can even hear the song as I say those words. But if you ever saw the movie Good Morning Vietnam, there was a scene at the very beginning throughout which this song was being played and the opening footage displayed the casualties of the Vietnam War where there was blood, carnage and even death. And these opening scenes which drip with irony, which drip with sarcasm as this song is being played, in one sense illustrates the very nature and fabric of the world that you and I live in. For the world that we live in, the world that we long to proclaim the gospel in, is such a mixture of the good and the bad and the ugly. And so for the next few moments we're going to be looking at the world through those three categories, those three lenses as it were, and I think I've got that on your outline on the left hand side. Well firstly, it is a good world, is it not? And you will recall, even if you know it well, I'm sure, through your own reading, that in Genesis chapter 1, at very significant points throughout the creation narrative, you keep on hearing the repeated sentence, and God saw that it was good, and God saw that it was good, and God saw that it was good. And then when you get to the sixth day, the the climactic day, when God creates humanity, we read, and behold, God saw everything that he had made, and it was very good. Very good indeed. And as you look out upon creation, as you look upon this world that we live in on those times of holidays, as you appreciate the breathtaking beauty, well, those kinds of verses can't help but come to mind, I hope and pray. Some years ago, two, three years ago, my family had the enormous pleasure of driving up the north coast of New South Wales up to Queensland. And we stayed in friends' homes who had generously provided them to us for free. We, our first stop was in Hawksnest. Anybody been to Hawksnest? Put up your hand. Isn't it a fabulous place? It's such a wonderful beach area and there's another beach called Jimmy's Beach who those of you who've been there will know about. I'm sure they don't have big crashing waves there. That's why we go there with our little children. And on one occasion when we were there, we saw, I don't know where you can see it very well, there's a fin up there, we saw dolphins come within metres of the shore. Metres! That's my camera! just thought I'd share that with you. <laughs> My kids are just in the water because I'm too scared to be in the water with those dolphins, but they were enjoying... That's real! 
It's unbelievable. That, that was Hawk's Nest. And to the side of Hawk's Nest is a place called Yakabar Headland where you could actually walk up to the top and have this view of, of the beaches in the area there and there are koalas everywhere. And we know that because they're actually droppings on our kids, but that's another story. And then in the house that we lived in near the beach, we actually had um, a, a koala resting there as well and further up the coast there was a green snake actually in the peg basket outside, which I too was very scared of but my son wanted to play with. And then there were other things as well. Frog. It was just lovely flora, fauna, why it was headlands, skies, beaches, lakes. It was incredible. It was beautiful. Small wonder that you want to really relate to the late Steve Irwin, as tragic as his death is, you can really relate to his words when he sees creation. Beautiful, can't you? Just beautiful. There was this scene once with Steve Irwin uh, in which a little snake was crawling up towards him, it was lying down, one of those apparently harmless snakes, but it came, and eventually got onto his nose and it was kind of dangling there and he said, Hey kids! Make sure you don't do this at home, but isn't it beautiful? You know, <laughs> and just panned in on the snake on it biting on his nose. Well, that's kind of what creation is like, really. It is incredible. So much so that we learn from Scripture itself, for everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. Nothing is to be rejected. But please remember what good means. It's not just aesthetic beauty, but good not only in 1 Timothy 4, but also in Genesis chapter 1, I put to you, means in accordance with God's purposes. What is good is in accordance with God's purposes. What makes creation so good is that it was made God's way. As such, it will be a delight to our senses. But in creating humanity, God had a particular good in mind. Do you recall in Genesis chapter 2, we meet for the first time something that is not good. It was not good for the man to be alone. And so he created the woman. In creating the woman, he created the woman to be in relationship with the man, to have harmonious relationship not only with each other but with the creation and with God himself as their creator. That was the ultimate good. As an aside, it wouldn't be wrong theologically, would it, for Adam to go up to Eve and say, we were made for each other. Could it? I know some of you want to get the bucket out and bob it into it, but don't worry. You know, I'm talking theology here rather than a come on line. But they were made for each other, for that was good in accordance with God's purposes. And so when we see the creation in all its breathtaking beauty, when we see relationships working the way they were meant to be, do give God thanks, won't you? Do enjoy it. Smell the roses through the fast pace of life as you keep on walking through life. Do you thank God for what we have? For it is according to God's purposes. But if that is the good of creation, then it follows that the bad of creation refers to a world that chooses not to live according to God's purposes. A world, therefore, in rebellion against God and a world, therefore, that is under his judgment. And one of the books that clearly demonstrates this 
with the use of the word world is in John's Gospel. For almost every reference to the word world in John's Gospel speaks of our rebellion against God. I've just got a couple of references for you. Firstly, there is Jesus speaking to his unbelieving family, his brothers. And he says to them in John 7, the world cannot hate you because you're unbelieving basically, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. But when he speaks to his believing disciples, he says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. See, what makes the world so evil is its hatred for Jesus. And this hatred for Jesus will overflow into a hatred for those who follow Jesus. I'm sure you've been living life long enough to know of this at least second hand as you read accounts of Christians who are persecuted physically for naming the name of Jesus. I get a particular um, email that comes through monthly from the Voice of the Martyrs a group of people who are keeping watch of where it is that our Christian brothers and sisters are particularly being persecuted. And just this morning, I read of people in India, in fact, two ministers who had been persecuted by extremist Hindus, one of whom raided their church during a baptism ceremony where he was baptising 20 of them and had put him in jail on fraudulent charges. And another brother just uh, in another part of India who was actually, or the Hindu extremists had actually gone in there with the express purpose of killing him, but somehow in God's mercy he got away. You hear about that, don't you? And that is because of their hatred of Jesus. Their hatred of his followers because they follow Jesus. But lest we think that it's just out there, lest we think it's just in third world countries so-called, I need to tell you that in your equivalent group in the United Kingdom, the Christian unions at Exeter and Birmingham and Edinburgh have all been denied club status and access because they have been accused of excluding non-Christians and promoting homophobia and apparently discriminating against those of transgender sexuality. The reason they've been accused of that is because they uphold the same doctrinal basis that you sign in order to become a member of the EU. It is exactly the same doctrinal basis. In fact, the Constitution is 99.9% the same as yours. And these people who have made the allegations against them have decided that because they cannot vote in their AGM, because they cannot ascribe to their doctrinal basis, that therefore they are promoting homophobia. And so, therefore, the university has actually frozen their bank accounts and disallowed them from using the rooms. That's in the the Western nation of England, the UK. Lest you think that's not us, please have it on your radar that that is the end point of secularism. We're riding a wave here in Australia at the moment of blessing and sovereign mercy. There will come a time when that is the case and you need to be prepared for it as an EU. 
We need to think outside the box in all sorts of ways and they are tackling it legally because really, legally, the university has not a leg to stand on. However, it is a battle, a battle that we need to fight and prepare for because the world hates Jesus and it will hate his followers. And God is angry, therefore. Since the fall of Adam and Eve, since their rebellion, the world has been under his judgment. Indeed, a judgment of futility. This futility is picked up in the book of Ecclesiastes. If you're familiar with the book, you will know that the phrase that keeps on coming up all the way through the book is meaningless, meaningless or vanity of vanities. And that word for meaningless or vanity is the idea of that of breath or vapour, something that is insubstantial that you can't hang on to, but the other end of the spectrum of that meaning can also mean something that's absurd or ridiculous and frustrating. And that is what life is like under the judgement of God in this world. That is part of the bad category that we need to remind ourselves on. In chapter 1 of Ecclesiastes, we learn of how creation is relentlessly unaffected. The sun rises and the sun sets as it always has. The wind blows round and round as it always has. The rivers go into the same streams and into the ocean as they always do. And humanity itself is relentlessly unaffected. It's like a futile treadmill that keeps on going on and going on and going on at infinitum. There is nothing new under the sun. But when you come to chapter 3... We read these words in verses 18 and 19. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beast is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath and man has no advantage over the beasts for all is vanity. All is meaningless. All is but a breath that is just here for a moment and in an instant is gone to the point of absurdity. In fact, the only thing that punctuates the treadmill of existence is death. We're just, we humans, slightly more sophisticated animals who live and breathe and eat and reproduce and die so that the next generation can do the same. We live, we eat, we breathe, we die. We live, we eat, we breathe, we die. We live, we marry, we work and then we eat some more and then we die. And it just goes on and on and on at infinitum. So much so that when we die, we get buried six foot under and the only one who's actually going to come out on top is the undertaker. It's a very sad view of life, isn't it? But it's a real view of life. And really that's the only hope that an atheist can have. In fact, it gets worse, doesn't it? It's more macabre than that. When our bodies rot in the grave, they're eaten by maggots, then the chickens eat the maggots, then our children eat the chickens, which means they would have eaten us in the process. How macabre is that? It's awful. It just goes on and on and on at infinitum. That is a world under futility. That is a world under the judgment of God. We live in a world that is frustrated, <laughs> but it gets worse. Welcome to EU. I hope you're enjoying yourselves thus far. In Ephesians chapter 2, if you are a follower of this world, look what else you follow as well. 
you were dead, not just physically, but spiritually, in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following, note, the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who is now at work in the sons of disobedience. That's another name for the devil. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, that inner inclination towards evil, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and were by nature no children of wrath, the objects of God's wrath, like the rest of mankind. The wrath as seen by this futility of our lives. This triad of the world, the flesh and the devil is what we fight against. And I just wonder whether sometimes we here in Australia fail to appreciate the spiritual dimensions of what makes up this world. Having grown up in Malaysia and Singapore with an extended family of thousands of cousins, let me assure you that believing the supernatural is something that comes very easily to me, which I suspect if you have grown up here does not come as easily to you. In our Western world, because of the gospel, there are many things that we no longer fear and that is a triumph of the gospel. But I wonder whether in assuming it sometimes, we have become so disinterested and so unfamiliar with what the Bible teaches on the issue of the supernatural that it's not on our radar, that this devil is not on our radar at all. The closest thing we come to the so-called supernatural is Buffy the Vampire Slayer or head spinning and green vomit in those weird sci-fi films. It's not for nothing that the Apostle Paul writes in Ephesians 6, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now that's another exegetical issue. How is it that you have evil in the heavenly places? But you can ask Rowan Kemp that question at ANCON because I'm sure that'll come up somewhere, won't it? So as we consider proclaiming the gospel of Jesus to this world, then please pay attention to these other verses in 2 Corinthians 4. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world, the devil, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. See, here are some of the ugly consequences of preaching the gospel, proclaiming the gospel, heriting the gospel in this world. Satan blinds people to, keeping, to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel in the image of God, the face of Jesus Christ. Satan blinds them. He's more than one way of doing this, really. You see, he can derail gospel preaching by persecuting gospel preachers, like those that I've mentioned in India, 
or our friends, our brothers and sisters in the UK. He can derail gospel preaching by tempting his people to sin and he obviously does that very well. He can derail gospel preachers by tempting them to preach a different gospel that suits their itching ears, indeed the itching ears of people in these last days. He can do all those things. But please note in 2 Corinthians 4, the way Satan keeps people from seeing the light of the gospel is not by preventing preaching, but by preventing spiritual perception from seeing the light of the gospel. The words of the gospel are heard. In fact, they may well be even comprehended, but there's no light. They can't understand why it ought to transform their lives. In fact, they might even be able to understand that, but they just don't transform. I wonder whether you know of people like that, those hard cases in your life, family members, friends, loved ones. My own father I have prayed for for over 20 years now. He's heard the gospel thousands of times. Amongst whom were in my view, some of the best evangelists in the country. And yet, it seems apparent to me that the light hasn't quite switched on. He's come close at points, but I'm just not persuaded that he's a Christian yet. There's someone like that in your life? It's a spiritual warfare. So please, as you consider gospel preaching on this campus and throughout the world, by all means, think creatively. But please ensure that you are a people who understand that there is a devil at work as well. If we're going to preach the gospel to the world, then what is it that we ought to do? Well, firstly, we've got to preach the authentic gospel. Where there is spiritual blindness, the cure can only be spiritual light. And it's only the authentic gospel of the Lord Jesus that is that spiritual light. It is only the authentic gospel of Jesus that is the power of God for salvation. That is why we spent the whole of last week's public meeting on what is the gospel. It's not so basic as to think that it's beyond us or rather that we are beyond it. Do you know there was a training course at a very prominent church that had an evangelical heritage in which they were handing around a paper plate. It wasn't a training course to help them prepare morning tea so that they could cut up some thinly sliced cucumber sandwiches and party pies and sausage rolls, but rather the plate was there for you to write on what you thought was the gospel and then you were to pass it to your fellow delegate and on and on around and the leader would grab the plate and say, this is the gospel for us. Now in a group that was gathered there, not only were there different nuances of what the gospel is, but there were views that were downright contradictory. And the one thing they were not allowed to say was, this is wrong. And that is just one expression, just one expression of so-called postmodernism, isn't it? Where it really has hit the pews. 
how could an evangelical church or rather such a church with an evangelical heritage come to that point? Quite independently, a number of senior saints, I'll call them, have shared with me this particular saying that I found of particular help and I hope you do as well. That what is taught in one generation can be assumed in the second generation before it's forgotten about in the third generation and then eventually denied in the fourth generation. Taught, then assumed, then forgotten before being denied. Within four generations. And if that ever happens, which generation is at fault? What's the second generation, isn't it? For assuming the gospel. Assuming it. That's why, dear friends, dear brothers and sisters of the EU, if you are a Sunday school teacher, if you are a youth group leader, if you are a faculty group leader, if you are simply meeting with someone one-to-one as an older year with a younger year, please don't ever assume the gospel or any other major doctrine for that matter. Keep teaching it. Keep teaching it with breathtaking love. That's why in 2 Peter chapter 1 he says, keep reminding them of these things. You know, it's so tempting. When I come to an EU meeting and I think, wow, this is, in terms of your heritage, this is almost arguably the heart and soul of where Sydney evangelicalism has really done its thing. You know, when you go back to years, the, the leaders who have come out of these circles are just amazing. And it's so tempting for me to kind of tremble and think, I'm going to talk to them about the gospel. And so basic, isn't it? That maybe I should, you know, wear some glasses and end the end of my nose and appear so sage-like and wise. And then put up a lot more Greek and Hebrew and weave in and out of that, you know? And come up with these great philosophies and quote all these scholars and to make sure that you're stretched beyond the gospel. That's how it gets denied in the fourth generation. Don't ever think you're beyond it. Preach the authentic gospel because no other gospel will save. And please also note that there is a difference between the gospel and the fruit of the gospel. I, for one, want to encourage you to keep on meeting the needs out of great compassion in this society, let alone the society on the campus. If there are people in poverty, we Christians must be at the forefront of helping them. If there are prostitutes on the streets, then we are the ones who ought to be caring for them and getting them off the streets. If there are people who are drunk beyond belief on our streets, then we are the people who should be looking after them too. If Christians are not doing it, well, shame on us. We have to be at the forefront. It is Christians who have been at the forefront of the RSPCA, for example. Uh, The Christians are the ones who led to the abolition of slavery with William Wilberforce. Why, we are the ones who should be. But in so doing, please note that that is the fruit of the gospel. It is the inevitable fruit of the gospel. 
But at one and the same time, I want therefore to encourage you to ensure that there is an enormous distinction in your head between the fruit of the gospel and so-called social justice and the gospel itself. The gospel is the message of Jesus, his birth, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, his return. It's all about Jesus and ultimately it's all about his lordship. And if that gospel has gripped us, then we will inevitably do all these social justice things. I'm just imploring you not to confuse the two. That is all. Now, it seems like such a simple distinction, but the trouble is that whenever I hear missionaries speak sometimes, sometimes, it's almost as if they think they are missioning if they help poverty. They do a bono thing, you know. That's not mission. Mission is proclaiming Jesus. The fruit of proclaiming Jesus will be alleviating poverty, etc. And we should be doing it. Just get the distinction right is all I'm encouraging you to do. Don't confuse the two. There is an enormous gulf of difference in that it is the gospel that is the saving power, not the social action. The gospel is what saves people out of the jaws of hell and transfers them to the kingdom of God. God willing, the social justice stuff will actually adorn the gospel. But I'm getting ahead of myself. The second thing I want to encourage you to do is to preach the authentic gospel to all. To all. Not just to non-Christians, but to Christians as well, which is why I have preached the gospel to you in the last couple of weeks. In Romans chapter 1, Paul says to his Christian readers, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also. I am sure that he is speaking to Christian readers at that point. And for him, an understanding of evangelism, I think, was not just the initial proclamation of the gospel, but the ongoing proclamation of the gospel to Christians to see them thoroughly established in the faith. So keep preaching it to all. If you run an event in which you are inviting non-Christian friends to come to and none of them come and then you have this room full of Christians and you happen to be the evangelist at the time, well, preach your heart out. Don't worry about it. Call them to repent as well because the gospel will do its work for Christians and non-Christians alike preach this authentic gospel to all and live lives that adorn that gospel. We've already talked about the social justice issues and that is important. Preaching the gospel will lead to the fruit of love, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control, all the fruit of the Spirit and it will make the teaching of God our Saviour attractive. In my men's Bible study group, as we're working through a course on evangelism, the constant testimony of each of those men was how people had lived their lives that made the gospel attractive. How someone's sister had just continually cared for others in ways that were beyond the call of duty. How, how someone else had actually sacrificed their time and their giving in order to help someone else. How someone had genuinely cared for others and come into their world through times of need. Those kinds of things stand out, don't they? They may get ridiculed for all other things, for being dorks or nerds or wearing their socks 
in sandals and strumming their guitar singing Kumbaya or something like that. But this stuff, that speaks volumes, doesn't it? Now, it's not the gospel, but it makes the gospel very attractive because we see the fruit of it. But at the same time, I also need to say some distinction here because we've got to remember that our lives, whilst adorning the gospel, does not increase its power in some sense. We've got to be careful there because in Philippians chapter 1, there are people who are preaching the gospel with wrong motives, says Paul. Yet Paul rejoices. In fact, their motive was to keep Paul in jail for some odd reason. Paul still rejoices because they're preaching the authentic gospel. So the gospel doesn't lose its own power because it is preached by bad people. The gospel is powerful. It's very able to look after itself, this message of Jesus. But our lives will adorn it. And God willing, people will keep asking why it is that we live the way we do. We have to preach the authentic gospel to all in this world without being of this world. And one of the best legacies we can leave, therefore, is to take part in Project Timothy. In these verses, Paul says to Timothy, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Interesting, there are four generations referred to here as well. There's Paul, then there's Timothy, there's the reliable people that he is meant to raise up and then there are those that the reliable people are to teach as well. I don't think that saying that I've heard from other brothers uh, comes out of this verse into the four generational thing. But I want to help you see that Paul was going above and beyond to try and raise up the next generation of gospel workers so that it would be transmitted from generation to generation to generation to pass the baton on so that they can see this world won for Christ. And dear friends, as I look on this public meeting and consider myself as one who is reaching his mid-40s, I think the midlife crisis is around the corner for me. So the books tell me. The grey hairs are coming out here in ever so mature kind of ways. Uh, my family keep threatening to dye them, but that's okay. I'll still fight them off for a moment. But as I keep on growing in age, I keep looking at you who appear to look younger and younger all the time. And I need to say to you, you are this next generation. You are this next generation that we want to see proclaiming the supremacy of Christ over every tribe and every language and every people and every nation. You are the next generation that we're asking to be missionaries, in other words, in a world that God so loved in Christ. And I want to say this to you and to you especially here at Sydney University. I don't think I would say this ordinarily in every university group I go to, most of them, but you especially I want to say it to because you guys have had enormous opportunities in this city. Your churches, I'm sure, preach brilliantly by and large. The teaching is ever so sound. The training that you are getting here is really training that most 
missionaries in serving in third world countries who have gone to seminaries have not had the same opportunities. It's incredible the opportunities before you and the gifts that you possess as well. I've not seen you specifically in action, but two, three years ago, what was it? What's it called? Minestrone? Whatever that camp is called at the beginning of the year that I actually spoke at. We had a fun night and it was just simply people coming up with items. On that particular night, people came up with these most creative items using technology as well. And then someone actually, one group sang a Beatles song. I closed my eyes and I thought it was Paul McCartney singing. It was incredible. Just out of nowhere, this song came, this voice came out of nowhere. It was amazing. This guy didn't look like Paul McCartney. He sounded like Paul McCartney. It was incredible. It was so Where these gifts came from? God. That's where they came from. And we're not to be proud of them, are we? Because they're not ours to promote ourselves. They're ours to use for his glory. And I'm saying that even in a group this size, although not all of us may necessarily be gifted to be that full-time missionary, I suspect that most of us, or at least all of us should consider it, but I suspect most of us can probably do it given what God has given you. Missionaries. <laughs> They're depicted by our media as intolerant, insensitive, imperialistic culture killers, aren't they? Now, there are terrible troubles in many parts of the world today because of wicked policies pursued by foreign powers over local peoples, and I've no doubt that Christians, even Christian missionaries, have been involved in some of that. But where the gospel has gone into the world and gone and gone and gone by messengers who bear the fruit of that same gospel, bearing the character of Christ, this gospel brings blessing. And it is good. It is according to God's purposes. It is good when a husband learns from Christ to love his wife, isn't it? It is good when people learn from Christ not to fear idols anymore. It is good when people learn from Christ to forgive. It is good when people learn from Christ to be truthful and these things and many more are just the beginning for it is good for people to receive the gift of forgiveness and eternal life but even when we have seen the goodness of all these things we have not seen the greatest good of all which is to know and honour and glorify Jesus as Lord. And this gospel of the Lord Jesus is the greatest good in all the world. And this is what this man named Adoniram Judson discovered. He is the first overseas missionary that was sent from America. He sailed with his wife Anne at the age of 23 on the 17th of February 1812 for Burma. They were married for 12 days, do you know that? 12 days before they actually set sail they spent the rest of his life until 1850, quote, suffering yet always rejoicing to bring Burma under Christ. And just in closing, I wanted to read to you a letter that Adoniram Judson wrote to his prospective father-in-law asking for Anne's hand in marriage. He writes these words, I have now to ask whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring to see her no more in this world, whether you can consent to her departure and her subjection to the hardships and sufferings of missionary life, whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean, to the fatal influence of the southern climate of India, to every kind of want and distress, to degradation, insult, persecution and perhaps a violent death. Isn't that a great letter? 
(laughs) Can you consent to all this for the sake of him who left his heavenly home and died for her and for you for the sake of perishing immortal souls, for the sake of Zion and the glory of God? Can you consent to all this in hope of soon meeting your daughter in the world of glory with the crown of righteousness brightened with the acclamations of praise which shall redound to her saviour from heathen saved through her means from eternal woe and despair? Oh, he understood the gospel. He understood the world in which he was proclaiming the gospel. And he was willing together with Anne to give up all. Well, her father actually let her decide, the great wimp. (laughs) But she said yes. You willing to say yes to this call of the gospel? Oh, there's a debate out there as to what the nature of this calling is, etc. But you can hear the call of the gospel, can't you? It is for all. And if it's gripped you, May it grip you like it gripped Adoniram Judson and his wife Anne. For Jesus is to be sought, to be savoured by all. May it be that you live for him with great pleasure, however God uses you. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your glorious gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ and we pray that in your dear mercy you might so grip us, change us, save us if we are not saved and help us to live out this saved life by proclaiming this message to others and bearing its fruit to the glory of your dear Son in whose name we pray. Amen.